It's 12 noon, Saturday, June 25th. This is Dwight Wiest in the WR Newsroom with 15 minutes of the latest news. First, a look at the weather. Sunny and breezy this afternoon with low humidity, the high in the comfortable 70s. Present temperature just off Times Square is 71 degrees, and there are light, puffy clouds in the sky. I'll have the complete weather forecast for you at the conclusion of this broadcast. Today marks the 10th anniversary of the Korean War. The communists observed it with a new demand that U.S. troops leave South Korea as well as other parts of Asia. North Korea, supported by the communist world, made its demand for a U.S. pullout in radio broadcasts and the press and at a meeting with U.N. command representatives near Panmunjom where the Korean truce was signed. I'll have more news for you after this message. think it's as simple as all that, huh? Well, let me tell you. I, I was just listening to Dwight Wiest, and uh, he said that the great race at Le Mans is now underway with the famous standing start. Does that mean anything to you? The standing start at Le Mans? Uh, what, what, uh, what it actually entails? What it is? Well, I'll tell you what the standing start at Le Mans is. All the cars are lined up with the noses of them. Now, this is not started like any other ordinary race. The the Indianapolis race, of course, is started with, uh, let's see, I believe it's 11 rows, 11 rows of three cars each, 33 cars, and they're strung out across the track in a great long line. And all the motors are started, and the cars take off that way. But this is a different kind of a race, the, the Le Mans. The 24-hour Grand Prix which is one of the most famous and probably the most uh, 
the most honored race of all the races all over the world. But the, but the standing start at Le Mans is a spectacular thing to see. All the cars are parked, you know what they call angle parking in the States with the noses into the curb? Well, all the cars are parked along the track in a long line. I believe it's, yes, it's a double line. That's right, a one, uh, not double really, but they're parked across the street from each other. They're parked along both curbs of the racetrack with the noses angled in toward the outer rim of the track. And the cars are stopped. The motors are not going. And they're all, they're all parked that way. And then the drivers, at a signal, run across the track. The race officially starts when the drivers begin to run, not when the cars begin to run. So they, they shoot off a gun, all the drivers run across the track, and they jump in the cars, and they step on the starter. They back up, and they drive away. Now, the reason they do this is because all these automobiles are supposedly stock cars in one way or another. They have to have starters. They have to have lights. They have to have a reverse gear. You know, there's no reverse gear on the Indianapolis cars. They're, they're pushed backwards. So the reason that they have these cars back up is to prove that they all have reverse gears. They can do this maneuver. And they can be started by the driver. Well, one of the funniest things that I have ever known, one of the, one of the saddest, and, and I think one of the most significant, of course, I have, a, I have a sneaking suspicion that almost anything that man embarks on, there is a touch of sadness connected with it anyway. It, it, there's, there's the inbuilt sliver of, uh, well, uh, frustration. Uh, the, the, uh, the dream never quite comes up to the reality. Well, a friend of mine was entering a car one of the wildest stories I've ever seen in connection with one of the great Grand Prix races. And this guy had a little racing car called a Bandini. It was an Italian car, and it was a very expensive piece of equipment. And he had been, he'd been racing it fairly successfully throughout uh, many of the Midwestern tracks and some of the Southern tracks. And it was all sports car racing, you know, which, is, which has replaced polo, incidentally. Uh, sports car racing has become what polo used to be maybe 50 years ago. And all the, all the young blades, the, the guys who have plenty of dough, who have absolutely no ambition, but who have, uh, glands, uh, find themselves, find themselves racing in sport car races now. There's all, there's a, there's a whole collection of these guys who go from track to track. And it's become a, a, a sport which most of the people who began sports car racing, that is, it was, it was begun right after the war again. Of course, sports car racing is an old, old thing. By the way, this is not going to be a program about sports car racing. I'll tell you one thing, though, that happened. So one of the wildest, funniest pictures I've ever seen uh, of, of, human, of human failure, the, the, the fantastic frustration, that this friend of mine got a hold of a Bandini race car and it's a very expensive piece of equipment, highly tuned. It, it stands there, and even when the motor is turned off, this car quivers slightly. It quivers, and you could, you could just feel the, the, the high-bred tension in it, you know. It's, it's a car that is always standing with its knees flexed, ready, ready to leap. Oh, it's a fantastic piece of equipment. You sit in this car, and immediately you feel as though you're, you're four, four feet taller. And you're, you're just, you know, you're just, uh, there's, a, there's a sense of power that flows through your body, which, of course, is purely an illusion. But uh, nevertheless, the, by the way, this is one of the reasons why so many guys get killed every year driving their, their ordinary uh, homegrown automobiles along turnpikes is this false sense of power and this false sense of security which the motor gives a man. Uh, very few guys, very few little guys do I know 
who really frankly admit that they buy big cars because big cars make them feel like big men, which is the, which is really the case. I I had this little little friend who looks like Jigs or something, who every two years goes out and buys, and and he makes hardly any money. You see, he's one of these guys who just barely scrapes along. But every two years, he goes out and buys himself a fantastic automobile, always used and always at least thirty feet long, tremendous car. And, and uh, he is the only guy I ever know, I've ever known, who looks me right in the eye and says, I buy that little car, that little old, that little old 400 horsepower car because it makes me feel big. Big, that's it, big, <laughs> big. And he gets into traffic and he bumps people and he, he tears up, he tears as, as, as uh, Red, as Red, uh, what is his name again? Oh, it doesn't make any difference. But the point being that, that the car is a, is a kind of a, an extension of the personality. And racing, of course, is, takes it one or two steps further. And this friend of mine was a wealthy type who was used to getting everything he wanted, always did. He had nothing to do but race cars every second or third weekend. And so he got a hold of a Bandini, which is a sleek machine, beautiful machine. And he, he, he trained the car. He had a mechanic that went with it. He had a trailer that went with the mechanic and the car. He had three girls who wore red coveralls who went with the entire entourage. It was the whole bit, you know. He made Sports Illustrated. He made Sports Car Illustrated. He made Road and Track, all of them. And he was always pictured sitting there with his white helmet, you know, buckling the thing underneath his chin, ready to take off and another big one. Well, I saw him one time take off in the biggest race of his career, and it was a, it was a beautiful, fantastic thing. It was right out of a Laurel and Hardy. They had trained the car. They had, they had tuned it now for about four months for this big, this big international Grand Prix. Now, to, to drive in an international, you see, is, is the equivalent of driving in, 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 a, in a sort of a continuous stream of Kentucky Derbies. It's a very difficult thing to get into the big international Grand Prix. And he finally made his first international. And I was there to see him. And the Bandini was parked down there, the angle parking. They have the, the business of the standing start. And everyone is, all the drivers are wearing their clean coveralls and wearing their white helmets. And Sports Illustrated was there and had taken the pictures. And everybody was ready to go. And there's a, there's a, there is also, incidentally, an international crowd that sort of, sort of gathers around all these Grand Prix. They travel from Grand Prix to Grand Prix. It's a very social, very special in-group. It has nothing to do really with the racing. It has, well, there's a, it, it, I guess, must be pretty much the same as the same crowd that followed the polo, the, the, the polo bombs. And, the, and the, a few years afterwards, the uh, tennis bombs. But the tennis thing has kind of slipped into limbo. It, it slipped out uh, somewhere around the mid-1930s. And, of course, it's still a big international event. But it is not followed with the same degree of, of uh, social, social coloring that it used to be followed with. And now we have the big international racing. All sorts of people race in these things, and among them, the very, very rich. Also, the very titled. Both of them race in these events. Well, here was a Grand Prix that was being raced. And my friend was down there, and he was representing America. In, in the whole shebang, only American driver in it. They fired the cannon, and he ran across the track. And I'm, of course, I'm cheering him on. 
Everybody else is cheering them on. All the international, the bevy of international beauties are all of them looking like Bridget Bardot, incidentally. He goes tearing across the track. He jumps in his car, grabs a hold of the, the, the starter lever, and which incidentally was a pull type, which came out of the dash, the kind you pull out. He grabs a hold of it, pulls it right out by the roots. Rah! He pulls it out. All the other cars are backing out, and there's his car. So he, he rushes, and incidentally, one of the rules of the Grand Prix is that no one, no mechanic is allowed to touch a car from the time it starts. That the cars have to be completely serviced by the driver, you see. If the, if the car stops somewhere after 28,000 laps and a, and a light burns out, you've got to get out and fix it yourself. And so Chuck jumps out of the car. In the meantime, all the Ferraris and all the Aston Martins and all the... All the A-barths are pulling out around him. There's this tremendous roar and the smoke is... And he's pulled the thing out by the roots. So he jumps out of the car, falls down, hits his head on the concrete with his with his white helmet, gets up, and he gets around the front, and he pushes the car out on the track. He finally gets it turned around, and he puts it in gear and begins to push it. Suddenly, the car started, and he was out of it. He's running alongside of it. <laughs> this is exactly what happened. He's running alongside of it, and the car is going like a demon. He's running, and he jumps out, and he's hanging on the back of it with one hand on the steering wheel, his feet hanging over the fantail. The car makes one complete lap like that. And finally, they're trying to wave him off the track. The yellow flags are up, and the green flags are down, and the, the purple flags are flashing. And he's running along with one foot hanging. He looked like he was driving a scooter, and the Ferraris are going past him. Finally, he just sort of falls off sideways, and the car goes into the infield, and he just sits there on his duff. $26,000 worth of equipment. Now, what a beautiful sight. It was, it was one of the... <laughs> I mean, it just it's made me feel kind of warm all over. I, I, don't, I don't mind. <laughs> all the fancy trailers with the chrome wheels. I guess it's because it's Saturday, you know. I, I'm, I'm sitting here, and I'm... I'm listening to Dwight Weiss talk about that, and, and, I, and I realize that very few people among the great mass of people really know what all of this Grand Prix stuff is about. Incidentally, speaking of the Grand Prix, I, I noticed a very beautiful report by a, a writer for the New York Times, the only paper in town, and I don't, have a, I don't have a contract with the New York Times, but the only paper in town that covers these things constantly and adequately is the New York Times. And I noticed a couple of days ago, right after the Grand Prix of Belgium, there was a beautiful write-up, and I don't remember who the name of the writer was, which is a very, this is a terrible omission, but he wrote up the Grand Prix of Belgium, and he talked about the, uh, the new cars opposing the old cars and the dangers that have grown out of the Grand Prix of today as opposed to the o earlier, older Grand Prix. Well, very interesting thing about it, I've, as, even as a kid, uh, I was very, very fascinated by automobile racing. And in fact, uh, almost every kid who grows up in Indiana, in one way or another, becomes involved in, not, not really involved in, but interested in the whole business of racing. Speaking of the race, going to the, going to the quick, or maybe the dead. This is WORAM and FM, New York. Uh, speaking of races. Do you, Don? Ever hear sticks on a bass fiddle? Well, lend an ear. Light. With true lager flavor, precisely right. 
crystally right. A crisp kind of light with true lager flavor. That's Valentine beer. No wonder it's the largest selling beer in the East. going to talk any more about Grand Prix racing, except to say that uh, probably the most interesting of all the Grand Prix racing occurred. Hey, why is it that hardly anybody, do any of you, am I the only one who remembers this? I mean, this is just a, it's just a, a passing question that probably has nothing to do with reality. But am I the only one who remembers pylon racing? I'm talking about aircraft racing. When I was a kid, I was—I must have been about six or seven or eight years old. My father was a nut for going wherever there was a crowd assembled. He was the greatest crowd man in in the history of the Middle West. And incidentally, the Middle West is a born just a, is, is just a is an area where crowds just naturally grow. Uh, for any and any any small reason, a crowd will will gather. Is there hardly anything to do if you <laughs> if you've ever. Uh, done any shallow water fishing in a shallow water lake, you recognize that one of the things that fish are constantly doing is just to look for something to pass the time of day. Hardly There is hardly anything more bored than a fish living in a freshwater shallow lake. And all you have to do is to take maybe a piece of bread and drop it down into shallow water that's clear. You know, you can see down through there to the bottom. And even if you, you don't get any bites, you will find... Thousands of fish will come just to look. They just come to look. Have you ever watched fish do this? It's interesting to, to realize that many times when a fisherman is sitting in a boat and he's getting no bites and they're not hitting, that he is being observed, or at least his worm is being observed, or <laughs> by, by a million fish, and they all just sort of sit around there and look. And they just observe. They've got nothing to do. Well, this is the way the Midwest is. It's like a big, shallow, lukewarm, clear water lake. And everybody's sort of standing around first on one foot and then on the other. Television was made for them, believe me. I mean, they stand first on one foot and then on the other foot. And then every three or four weeks, somebody announces that there will be a strawberry social next Sunday at the church. And, of course, then this gives you three more weeks of interest to live by. You work hard at that. And then, then after the strawberry social, everyone stands around again. You see, it's, it's a continuing action. Well, my old man was always in the forefront of any crowd that formed. And I could tell you about some fantastic crowds that occurred in the Midwest over absolutely nothing. Nothing. It was just th- th- nothing. It would be as if somebody had dropped a breadcrumb in this fishbowl and they all gathered. It was just nothing. And one of the things that used to gather the people, of course, it was always the weekend that the crowds really did gather on. And I can remember as a child, one succession of crowds after the other. One succession of boiled-over radiators after the next. Millions of radiators boiling over. Great long lines of people. Guys walking up and down through the lines selling good humor bars. 
And the, the, the whole thing just covered over with a thin coating of yellowish, brownish, grayish dust. And, and what was that? Yes, of course, you're right. It wasn't good humor. It was Eskimo pies. <laughs> He's right. We have a, <laughs> we have a historian leaping. <laughs> That's right, Eskimo pies. And, and this, this long line extending into the distance. And, and uh, the, the, the idea, of course, was, was a kind of breaking of the boredom. You know, life is, in a way, a long, uh, a long process of finding something to do. Uh, finding something to do. All of this business of cutting out paper dolls and all this tremendous, this file cabinet system we have here. And all of this, this great business. Have you ever stopped to think of all the, the business of mankind, all of the trivia, all of it, including all the great making of automobiles, all the fantastic operations that go on? What is it all about anyway? I mean, really, you know, you eat, you sleep, and you die. This is about the extent of it, you know, and when, when all of it is sloughed away. But all the rest of it, as George Ade put it one time, George Ade said that, that fun is the few moments the little moments that you can forget that you're growing old and are about to die. And there's much truth to this, you see. It's, oh, the, the whole business is going on. Of course, in the Midwest, you were reminded much more constantly of mortality than you are in the great city, the urban, the big urban complex. You, you, there, there's hardly even uh, ground around here to remind you that you are living on the earth, that you are really part of, uh, of something that, that has to do with nature. But on, the, uh, on that big Midwestern plain, no, it's not at all like this. And so the people are constantly looking for something to do. And there is hardly anything really to do. Uh, here on the eastern seaboard, we have, we, have, uh, we have the ocean, for one thing. And don't, don't ever discount the ocean. Uh, the ocean, even if you don't go to it, is always out there. It, it, it has influenced the entire life of the whole eastern, the whole eastern state complex. Of course, there's no ocean in the Midwest. There, there are only those lakes out there. And those lakes are far and few between. And uh, here it is. It's just a large, flat piece of ground. And the sun comes down. And, and there's hardly anything that happens. And once in a while, why the, why the drive-in theater? Do you know that I have seen people in the Midwest sitting in a drive-in theater when there is no show being shown? They just drive out there and sit and look through their windshield. And they take the speaker and they hang it on the side of their car and they just sit and they bring their lunch. I have seen people drive for 40 miles with their lunch just to watch the steel mill work. Just to watch it over there in the distance. You just see little lights going once in a while and you see flames in the sky. They sit there and eat their lunch and for four hours and finally they get back in the car and they drive, drive back out to the, drive back out to the house. And this is, a, this is the constant search. Well, my old man was always in the forefront of the great crowds that, that happen. And I can remember as a kid one time going to a thing in a big airport. Incidentally, that was another thing, you know. People used to drive to just sit and watch airplanes. No more, no less, just watch airplanes. And we would go to the airport and sit there, and the planes would come in, and the planes would go off. And every time they would go in and go off, there would be comments by all the spectators who were standing around watching. They would, they would comment as to whether, boy, look at, look at that cowboy. And the guy would go up very steeply. Everyone would comment on whether he, whether all this, this whole business of just watching things was a very important. My grandmother spent 30 years of her life sitting on the front porch watching cars. So all she did was watch cars go by. 
And she did not know one car from the other. That's the sad fact of it. She never once ever learned anything about cars. I used to sit there and I'd say, Hey, Grandma, there goes an Essex. See, she'd just look. She said, uh, Oh, that's, uh, I, I don't know those people. And they would go past. She had no interest at all in the cars, but she watched more cars probably than any, than any turnpike guard of today watches. She just sat and looked at them. But I remember one time being taken in, into a, into the car. And we drive, we drove all the way on out to the outskirts of Chicago, out to the municipal airport. I remember the word. They were always talking about going out to the municipal airport. And out at the municipal airport, they were having the air races. Well, of course, this drew fantastic crowds. It is unimaginable how many people gathered in the Midwestern states for a thing like the air races. They came from every, every city of, of, well, it was just tremendous. And the roads, of course, were not like they are now. So you had billions of cars all lined up. It would start at 6 o'clock in the morning, just the driving, until finally everyone would arrive, and it's about maybe 2 in the afternoon when the air races would begin. There's a tremendous sea of people. And right in the middle of it, and get this, right in the middle of the sea of people was a field. And on this field, there were three pylons. There were three pylons. They were just a pylon, maybe 75 feet tall, painted red and white, and it's sort of a triangular, tall, thin, pyramidal-shaped thing, sitting right out there in the field. There were three of them in a triangular pattern. One, two, three. And right down there at the base of one of the pylons were four or five, maybe as many as six or seven tiny airplanes, wee itsy-bitsy airplanes, and over near the edge of the field, there was a hangar with a whole crowd of other little airplanes. And these were airplanes like you've never seen in your life. I don't think anybody has ever seen anything like it since. These were airplanes that were so wild, so fierce, that they could hardly fly. If the motors were turned off, they fell, pow, like a rock, right down to the ground. It would be as if you took an airplane motor, just a motor, and you attached two tiny wings to it, you sat on the top of it, and you turned it on, and the motor got so wide, and it ran along the field, and it just jumped right up in the air, and went, flew around in circles. Well, that's the kind of airplanes these guys flew. They had wingspans of about maybe 12 to 15 feet. Can you imagine that? little tiny wings. Yeah, you could put one of these in your living room. And they had great big fat motors on them. And these guys would sit in the back of them and they were, wild. of course, no parachutes because what good does it do? You're flying at 50 feet. And flying at 250 miles an hour, maybe 200 miles an hour, at 50 feet off the ground. And this is what they would do. They would not race against time. They would race against one another, as I recall it. And the airplanes were red and green and purple and all colors with big wide stripes, white stripes and green stripes down the side. Some of them were high wings, some of them were low wing, some of them were egg-shaped, others were shaped like needles. And almost all of these airplanes were built by the guys who flew them, which made it even more intriguing. You didn't go down to the Piper Cub Company and buy one of these planes. These were racing aircraft. And when, when a race would begin, this was the way it would start. And my old man is right down there in the crowd. Well, I'll tell you, this made this made the Roman made the Roman <laughs> orgies look like kid stuff. It made it made that business of the lions look like a Bobsy twin picnic, actually. 
and the crowd would be just packed cheek by jowl, all of them knocking down the good humor bars and the Eskimo pies, all of them standing there eating rainbow ice cream cones, drinking, drinking beer and sweating it out. The sun is beating down. They're all covered with a coating of dust, and no one is sitting. You couldn't possibly sit. And this is the way the thing would happen. The temperature stands at 137 degrees, which is what it always was during one of these great gatherings of Midwestern people, like, like a great, great, great school of sunfish all gathered down to look at the worm. Millions of them would come from Ohio, from Indiana, from Kentucky, from Michigan, from all of the Midwestern states, Iowa. They had all gathered to stand in this great big field and watch. And at 2 o'clock, the big cannon would go off. Boom! Like that. And these guys would rush out from the, from the hangars. Maybe eight or nine guys would rush out around the airplanes. Guys wearing white coveralls and red coveralls and green coveralls with helmets and goggles. And did they... There was never anything looked more romantic than these guys, let me tell you. They were fascinating characters. They would get in the planes and their mechanics and they barnstormed. They would travel around the country in, in teams of two and three guys. And, and each team would own an airplane, and two of them would fly, and usually one was the mechanic. And, and often he would double as a flyer if one of the other two guys were sleeping off a hangover or something. They were really, they were really barnstormers. And so the guys would, by the way, you know where the term barnstorming comes from? Barnstorming comes from the, the, the fact that the guys would travel around the country, and they would rent a barn to put their plane in, and they would do they would do their aerial stunts, they would do their parachute jumping and all that on a Sunday in, in, a barn, in a barnyard lot. And they would use the barn as a hangar. And so it came to be known as barnstorming. And uh, they, they really were uh, just traveling gypsy airplane pilots. But of course the racing crew was a completely different crew because they had to have very special equipment, very expensive equipment. And it was, it was very tough, tight competition. They don't allow this kind of racing any longer, incidentally. Now, this could all very well be a, a figment of my imagination, and probably is, but I will describe to you what my imagination saw. It seems hardly possible that this could happen. Well, at 2 o'clock, the cannon would go off, and all these guys would run out, and they would get in their airplanes. Maybe five or six of them, maybe as many as eight or nine would race together in one clump, and they would all start their motors. And if you've ever seen a crowd of little airplanes start their motors on a field that's nothing but dust in the first place... You've never really seen... This is a, a very good insight into hell. And the motors are roaring, and this great crowd of dust is floating back on the people. And, and millions and millions of, 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 of Eskimo pie wrappers and Eskimo pie sticks and hats and stuff are flying through the air with the great wash of the props. And then one by one, they take off. And the way they would take off is like no airplane you've ever seen. Because, again, this was on grass. This was not on concrete runways. It was on grass and on dust. These planes would run along the ground for, oh, a very short distance, actually, with their motors wide open. And they would jump off the ground about five or six times because they had such a short wingspan. They could not take the long run, that, that gradual takeoff that we're used to seeing. They would go, they would hop along the ground, and on the fourth or fifth hop, the guy would just gun it all the way, and he would stay up out of sheer willpower. And he'd go down, he'd tear along the ground, and he would just, it was fantastic. I'll tell you, it was frightening to see. And they would be about 50 or 60 feet off the ground, and they had the most angry, rotten snarl. They would just go, 
They would go like that. They're just terrible sounding airplanes. And one by one, they would jump off the ground until there was a whole field of these little planes flying around like so many flies, like so many blue back flies. And they're all buzzing in this angry roar, and all of them maybe 50 to 75 feet. They could get no altitude at all on these planes. They could get nothing but speed, and the only thing they did have actually was that they were not touching the ground. And they, these guys would sit in these airplanes, and they're roaring around the field at about maybe 200, 220 miles an hour, and, and at a fantastic uh, formation. They would fly maybe six or seven feet from each other. They're going until finally they all approach the pylon. The, the starting pylon, which was a different color than the rest. It was green. The others were red and white. And they would all approach the pylon. And by the way, they had to fly lower than the pylon. If they flew above the pylon, it was they were out. They were considered to have not made a turn properly. And they all had to fly lower than the pylon. And the pylon was a big wooden structure about 75 feet tall. And so the planes are all flying level low to the ground. And in one mob, they did not fly against time. They flew against one another. And they would all approach this pylon full out, all of them. They're, they're ready to start. And they're, and then boom, it would go. They would all go around the pylon. And some, guy was, some guys would go high. Some guys would go low. Other guys would fly wide. Other guys would cling to the turn. And all of them would approach the turn. And they would all converge on the next pylon. Just like going through a funnel. Just like, you know what, going through a funnel. They would, they would go around, and everybody is screaming madly. And then they'd make about three or four of these turns, and of course, inevitably, it would happen. You'd see this great cloud of dust over on the far turn. Boom! Some guy hits the dirt. Boom, 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 boom. His plane would roll over about 35 times. There would be a great shout and a great, a great spurt of flame. And the planes would seem to, to go even faster then. When they would see, they'd see one of their fallen comrades, they would be encouraged by this. They would step on the gas even more. And then a plane would go, maybe after 15 or 20 turns, one of them would go into the crowd. 400 people killed in one great swath, just right through the crowd. No one would say anything. Just a great cheer would go up, and more racing would go on. Of course, this was all part of the universal death wish that was so much... So much floating down over the great landscape in the Midwest. Does anybody remember this kind of racing? This would go on all afternoon. And between, between races, little wagons would go out and pick up the pieces. The, the, the little airplanes would be brought back, little pieces of green wing. And, and, and by the way, these airplanes were nothing but frame. They had no, they had no uh, well, they had no protection at all because they were all built for lightness. They were built out of canvas. They were built out of aluminum, little aluminum pipes, and this great big motor hanging up in the front. You know who one of the most famous of all the racers in that crowd was? I, I remember seeing him race. I saw him race. Of course, he was he was a famous name. He would, it would be like going to see somebody like uh, oh Rathman or one of the great drivers, uh, the Indianapolis drivers of now. He was a very famous man, and one of the most famous races of all of them of that time was a guy named Doolittle. Jimmy Doolittle raced in this fanatical, wild, screaming racing. Another one was a guy named... Uh, oh, he was very famous. Roscoe Turner. Does anyone know the name of Roscoe Turner? I will award the Brass Figlegi with Bronze Oak Leaf Palm if you can tell me what Roscoe Turner's insignia was. What was it that Roscoe Turner often flew with that, that was kind of his, his trademark? 
I will award the brass pig the gee with bronze or oak leaf palm to any to any Saturday member of the of the vast throng who can <laughs> the great crowd that's about to converge who can tell me what Roscoe turned now why do I remember this I must have been seven uh, I'll tell you why I do remember it though we were on the field one day when Roscoe Turner arrived and Roscoe Turner always piloted a plane that was painted pure gold his planes were always gold colored gilt planes and Roscoe Turner came out on the field wearing a pair of high water breeches the riding pants you know the high high whipcord trousers and he had a gold he had a gold satin jacket and a gold helmet on and he, he wore these great big goggles yeah, well, it, was, it was spectacular. And he had with him, as he walked across the field, his famous trademark. And, and I remember as a kid, I almost passed out from pure excitement. It was so fantastic to see. <laughs> anyway, this, this kind of racing, and it's interesting to note that this has hardly been even recorded, that, uh, that I have not read any books on it. I have never seen anything said about it. It's it just as though it passed without even so much as a Without even so much as... Speaking of aircraft, we have with us today Lufthansa. (laughs) Far cry uh, from this sort of thing. Incidentally, I would like to point out, though, something very important. And that is that these men driving their racing aircraft, and all of them since they were freewheelers and barnstormers, all of these guys contributed tremendously to aviation as we know it today. Because these men built their own aircraft. As a matter of fact... Uh, there was one aircraft which was called the really, uh, well, it was, it was the most death-dealing aircraft I think that's ever been, ever been piloted in America. This thing, this thing dealt out death from the bottom of the pack constantly. And it was, I will award you, Russ, I will award you the Brass Figligy if you can identify that aircraft. And I'll give you a few cue, uh, a few little clues. This was one of the great racing aircraft of that period. It became, uh, in later, versions of it. The U.S. Air Force copied it, and in later versions, it became a fighter plane, a pursuit plane. And this plane was a famous racing plane. It killed about a dozen pilots. It was it was the hottest little aircraft that ever flew in the pylon racing world. And I will give you a clue. It was milk bottle shaped. This little airplane was shaped sort of like a milk bottle. If you can imagine a little pint bottle, a little tiny bottle, a little short, fat airplane with little short wings and a great big tail, and it was it was a, a real killer. And uh, this this plane was one of the most famous planes of that period of the of that racing world. Now I don't want I don't want these elderly gentlemen to write and say now now he, Mr. Shepard is obviously he must remain he he must be no I was a little kid but I remember this as vividly as if it were branded on my brain because my father was always taking me to these things. And naturally, it was it was such a wildly exciting thing that it could, you couldn't possibly forget it. But this kind of racing just disappeared, and this is a program not about racing, so don't get excited. It's about it's about man's dreams because this whole business, this whole t- kind of racing, this whole thing had to do with a, an attempt on the part of whatever it is. Yes, that is right. That is right. Somebody recognized it. Roscoe Turner carried, during many of his races, he carried either one or two, sometimes two, he carried one or two lion cubs with him on a leash. And now I will award you the real Brass Figligy if you can tell me 
What company sponsored Roscoe Turner? And he had the company's insignia painted on the side of his plane in great big green paint, great green swatches of paint. Who was it who sponsored Roscoe Turner? <laughs> I mean, why do, why do I remember this trivia? I will, uh, I'll have to, why do I remember this ridiculous stuff? What is wrong with me? Can anyone tell me why I remember Roscoe Turner and his lion cubs and, and what was painted on the side of his airplane? I remember it and, and I could hardly read. But there it was. I, I remember it. I can still see. He, he flew, at one time, he flew a Lockheed Vega. Do any of you remember the Lockheed Vega? Beautiful airplane. And the Lockheed Vega was also flown by Lindbergh and his wife, Ann Morrow, when they flew around the world. They had a Lockheed Vega equipped. No, they were flying a Lockheed Orion. There was a whole series of Lockheed Vega, Lockheed Orion, Lockheed Sirius aircraft where they were naming them after, after stars. And the Lockheed Vega was the plane that at one time was flown by, by Roscoe Turner. And I remember they, I believe it was a Lockheed Sirius that, uh, Lindbergh and his wife flew around the world. And he wrote a, a very fine book about that flight, which is of no interest, I suppose, but this was a, fl a float plane. And as a child, I was given a model of this airplane by an uncle of mine, my, my bootlegger uncle, who was the only one in the family who had money, which incidentally kind of made me wonder about this thing that they were always telling me down at school about how if, if you went straight and how if uh, honesty is the best policy, the only uncle that I had at that period was an uncle who wore gray spats and dealt in illicit liquor that came from, came from Canada somewhere <laughs> at the Kentucky Hills. But this uncle, for one, one Christmas gift, gave me a big cast iron model of the Lockheed Sirius that had been flown by Lindbergh and his wife, and it was painted red and black. But uh, this is all, why do I remember this trivia? Speaking of trivia, we have with us, we ha and speaking of aircraft, we have with us Lufthansa today. And I would like to recommend that if you are planning to make a European trip, if you really want to fly a magnificent aircraft, I would suggest that you try one of the big, one of the big Lufthansa DC 707s, a magnificent aircraft. Incidentally, they have a very special 707 that is flown by Lufthansa. Uh, it's a 707 that was, of course, made by the uh, Boeing Aircraft Corporation. But the interior, <clears throat> the interior of the plane was made in France. Uh, it was built in France. It uses Rolls-Royce engines, the, the particular 707s that are flown by the uh, Lufthansa pilots, are 707 uh, Rolls-Royce engines. Big, beautiful. You, you should, you know, have you ever seen those Rolls-Royce jet engines with the big Rolls-Royce uh label hanging out there. <laughs> it's very impressive. And uh, the, <clears throat> the interior of the plane was designed in Germany. It's a very, very international aircraft, but a beautiful, beautiful example of international flying equipment. But this is Lufthansa, and if you're planning a trip to Europe in the next seven or eight months, I would suggest you try Lufthansa. Uh, I might point out that it's difficult these days to get a ticket on one of the Lufthansa international flights. But if you if you are planning a flight, it would be worth trying to get on Lufthansa. That uh, they have become so so sought after as an airline that in less than five years, Lufthansa began business in 1956. Uh, that is their post-war business. You know that Lufthansa is the oldest is the oldest commercial airlines in the world. Lufthansa was flying right after World War One as a commercial airline, and uh, it's a. Uh, 
I, I saw a history of the Lufthansa airline. Uh, even even as a kid, you know, the Lufthansa airline was a very romantic thing. They used to fly the big Junkers, the big Junker trimotors with the uh, with the corrugated flat sides. You remember those those uh, Ford and later Ford built them in the United States under a license by Junkers Fokker. The uh, the Fokker design, beautiful aircraft. You know that some of those Fokker planes that were that were uh, built by Ford in Detroit are still being flown in South America. Some of those planes are are 35 years old and are still working regularly. Uh, the romance of of the aircraft is I, I've never no, I've never outlived it. You know, when I was a kid, no kid wanted to be a television star or a movie actor. The thing that all kids wanted to be. Boys wanted to be air, airplane pilots, and girls wanted to be nurses. Those were the two most glamorous professions that existed. But we would like to point out again, Lufthansa is on deck, and if you are planning a trip, we would suggest you do it via Lufthansa, an international flight. But but you know the, the whole the whole romance of this thing has kind of uh, has kind of disappeared. Speaking of disappearances, here I go. This is always. Wilson, you sent the game-winning email at the buzzer, avoiding a 4.55 meeting on everyone's calendar. How did you do it? I got a huge assist from Grammarly, an AI writing partner that helped me make my point. 96% of Grammarly users say that it helps them craft more impactful writing. Would you agree? Grammarly helped adjust my tone to navigate tough work conversations. And it works everywhere I write, so I can quickly communicate effectively. Your teammate used Grammarly to summarize an important document, making a three-pointer. How did he do it? It only took one click. When everyone uses Grammarly, everything just makes sense. You made an incredible slam dunk to end the game. The meeting was canceled, and your team will go home champions. Go to Grammarly.com slash podcast to download it for free. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said, done.